And all of us are welcome to find our spot in our Bibles from Genesis chapter 9. Today we'll be in verses 18 to 29, so if you want to get your, your finger in there, please feel welcome to do so. So as I said, we were greatly blessed last night to be able to enjoy a wonderful time of worship together around the Lord's table and then moving into our annual meeting. Another thing from last night, for those of you that didn't see, just if you're not on social media, yes, Sherry and I are expecting a, another little one, so it is a great blessing to us. But in the midst of all of these things, it has been great to come to the book of Genesis, these first 11 chapters, and see the wonderful foundations that our God has laid in his word and the truths that he has proclaimed. And here we continue, and we are coming very close to the end of our time in these 11 chapters. But like I said, we are in 9, 18 to 29 this morning. So looking at that passage, I was struck that there is nothing quite like looking at a blank slate at the beginning of a project. Whether that's an empty canvas or an uncarved piece of wood or stone, the empty pages of a notebook or otherwise, those mediums seem to just be begging to be filled or formed. The possibilities seem endless and that's the same is true in some sense of our families. We see a newborn or a young child and we just can't get over this sense of almost unlimited potential or versatility. What, what is this child going to be? This is a life that is waiting to be filled, a lifetime that is waiting to be formed. And so it was when God first determined to create the world. For in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. As we've been seeing through our time in Genesis 1-11, to this beautiful creation that God has wrought upon that blank canvas, the goodness of that creation, didn't last long in its pristine state. Sin entered through Adam and death through sin, and ultimately, this led us to the flood of Noah's day that blotted out all land-dwelling life on earth, especially the lives of man, save the ones who were preserved on the ark. Eight people, one pair of every unclean animal, and seven pairs of all clean animals, as provided by the Lord. We covered that this flood narrative is one of decreation and recreation, Last week we saw Noah being recommissioned as something of a second Adam. Recommissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Another opportunity for mankind to do it right. To do what they have been called to do. But unfortunately the words of the Lord as he thought to himself of this blessing that he would give to Noah this covenant that he would make with him. In 8.21, the thought of the Lord is that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
And that proves true in the life of Noah. Noah was a man who was commended as righteous, who walked with God, and now shortly post-flood, this is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two or three years post-flood because that's how long it takes for grapes to grow and produce fruit. But shortly post-flood, Noah becomes embroiled along with his offspring in this new saga of sin. That fresh canvas, that new creation again has been marred by a fall, by the wickedness of man. So as I said, would you please turn with me to Genesis 9 and we'll read starting in verse 18 through to verse 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. This is God's word. And to me, reading this, this always seemed like something of an odd story and I think one of the greatest difficulties, as we mentioned before, is this kind of deprogramming of the Sunday school picture of Noah. Noah and his family were these godly smiling faces on the boat with the giraffe sticking out of the top. When, in reality, Noah was a fallen man used by God who himself was just as susceptible to sin as any other of God's instruments. So while it may seem strange to us that this would be the finer, final chapter of Noah's story, tarnishing what, as far as we can read, was what was an otherwise stellar track record, I think it's valuable to us that the, this is the last chapter here. It reminds us that just as it was with Adam and Eve, whether it's Noah or King David or Moses or the Apostle Peter, all of these and each of us have and will fail in our service to God. And yet, this does not become defining of our legacy or need not become defining of our legacy. And as we'll see, Noah himself is actually not the primary offender in this account. At first glance, these first, the first two verses, 18 and 19, basically just serve as a recap of Noah's family, kind of a who's who of our passage. But there are two other functions besides reminding us that, okay, we have 
Ham, Shem, and Japheth as Noah's sons, there are two other functions. First, looking at kind of the, the parenthetical statement, a lot of the Bibles I saw, it actually had this in brackets. There's this insert, Ham was the father of Canaan. Why does it not put in brackets that Shem was the father of Arphaxed, who was the ancestor of Abraham? Or that Japheth was the father of Javan, who traditionally was identified as the father of the Greeks? Remember again that this was Moses writing to God's people, the Israelites, likely during the Exodus. The Hebrew people had left Egypt and were on their way to where? To the promised land. A land of milk and honey. A land occupied by whom? The Canaanites. For a people who, and the Israelites were this way, the Hebrew people still are this way. These are people who are keenly aware of their own genealogies. They know where they've come from and who they've descended from. Moses didn't need to remind his audience who Shem was and who Shem's offspring was. They themselves, the Hebrew people, are the offspring of Shem. But pertinent to this story was the identity of the particular son of Ham, that being Canaan. Well, we'll get to the details of Canaan in a couple minutes. Another function in these first two verses is the statement in verse 19 that these three were the sons of Noah and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. We don't need to go too in depth here, but this fairly simple element is also an important one. There's to be no confusion. There were no other survivors. All of the people of the earth are descended from one of the three sons of Noah. And that also prepares us well for Chapter 10, which is upcoming, which is often called the Table of Nations. But then we come to this story about Noah, his two-verse account of his debauchery. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. That's the whole story of Noah there. Or at least this instance. And as is typically the case when we come to something that Scripture obviously disapproves of, when Scripture is reporting the state of a person who is obviously involved in sin, oftentimes Scripture doesn't go into a whole bunch of detail as to why or how or even bothering to offer a huge condemnation of it. It's just, this is not central to the story. There is a sense of, okay, we know that this is wrong, so I don't need to explain it anymore. Noah was drunk and naked in his tent. Scripture clearly condemns drunkenness, and because of Adam and Eve's sin, public nudity also became an immediate source of shame for mankind, hence the fig leaves and the clothing of Adam and Eve by God and animal skins. But Noah was drunk and naked in his tent. That nakedness should not have been a problem for anyone besides Noah. 
And Noah's sin of drunkenness should not have carried forward beyond his own life to become a stumbling block. Hence, it is not Noah that is in the crosshairs here. There's this kind of passing, though disapproving, mention of Noah's condition. And, as is often the case, Noah's sinful action as a father gives rise to an opportunity for his offspring to fall into sin. But it is not Noah that our author concerns himself with. It is the sinful actions of Ham as well as the righteous response of his brothers that form the backbone of our passage. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father naked. And it's important that at this point that the, we set the record straight. Some have suggested that when our passage says that Ham saw his father naked, that perhaps this is implying something more, something darker. Perhaps Ham had committed a sexual offense of some kind. But our passage does not say Ham uncovered his father's nakedness, which is the typical euphemism for uh, sexual sin, but it just said that he saw his father naked. The language of our passage doesn't support it going further than that. And the offense is not even necessarily, or at least not even only, that Ham walked in on his father naked, though that seems to be a part of it. The greater offense is the dishonor displayed to Noah compared to the honor showed by his two brothers. Not only did Ham walk in on his father, but immediately what was his response? He ran outside to tell his brothers. He ran out to tell his brothers of his father's shame. Later in Israel's history, again, remember, we're very early still in the tale of mankind and God's dealings with mankind. But there is a great deal of weight given to the sin of dishonoring and disrespecting one's parents. Exodus 20.12 says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. In Deuteronomy 27.16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say amen. It is clear from our passage that this was not how Noah was treated by his son Ham. The alternative being the way that Shem and Japheth acted in concert to very painstakingly preserve the modesty and honor of their father. They knew what was going on inside that tent, and they had to work out, okay, how do we not only just not go look, but how do we protect our father from being further dishonored? And they come up with the plan. They put a cloak over their shoulders and back all the way in and cover their father. The, the picture is almost they walk until they can kind of see dad's toes sticking out from underneath the cloak and then put the cloak over him and keep him protected. This whole theme of the covering of nakedness, this is not the first time we've seen it either in these first 11 chapters. Adam and Eve, immediately upon eating the fruit, the first thing that they notice we're naked. So the first thing that they try and do is try to cover their own nakedness. 
But an even better comparison is in 321, where the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and the wife, and he clothed them. To quote Dr. Kenneth Matthews, he says of Shem and Japheth that they, in effect, imitated in the garden when God covered Adam and Eve. Obviously, there's a breakdown of any metaphor because God was not avoiding sin in the way he covered Adam and Eve. But if we take that comparison at face value, Shem and Japheth display the same care and love and protect part for Noah as God did to Adam and Eve, covering their nakedness with a tender-hearted concern for the subject of their actions. Now when Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth and let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Noah wakes from his drunken stupor and discovers what Ham has done. We don't know how he found out, who revealed what, or if he just intuitively knew what happened. But this is a situation where two wrongs don't make a right. There was no excusing Ham's wickedness because Noah had made equally sinful choices. I think that's something we're really very often tempted to do. Whether it's our reaction when someone else cuts us off in traffic or our answer to someone else's harsh words or our cold indifference and maybe even smug delight when someone who has slighted us kind of gets theirs. Just because Noah had sinned gives no extra leniency to Ham's unrighteous actions in his response. And I'm sure Ham would have, well, it's not my fault that you doesn't matter whether Noah acted sinfully. It doesn't matter whether someone else has acted sinfully against you. We are responsible for our own actions before God. So Ham is judged harshly. But if we read our passage, our ears should perk up because Ham dishonors Noah. But why, if it is Ham that sinned, who does this curse fall upon? Not upon Ham, but upon Canaan, Ham's youngest son. Short answer is, our passage doesn't go into detail to explain this. There's a whole lot of speculation was it actually Canaan who sinned against Noah and Ham who took the blame for it? Was Canaan kind of an involved fourth party? And like I said, our passage doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, but the two explanations from Scripture that seem to me to best fit our text is that in 9.1 of Genesis here, we can read that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there's an element of, can Noah so easily invoke a curse upon the one whom the Lord has just blessed? But looking upon the way in which this invocation of a curse of the Lord against Canaan is played out in history, I think there's more here than just Noah's not cursing the one that the Lord has blessed. I would believe that the explanation 
is that Noah here acts possibly unintentionally, but acts as an unintentional prophet. Moses is writing this account somewhere, like I said, in the midst of the exodus of Israel through the wilderness on their way into the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. And those wicked people, the Canaanites, they embody the same ethos as was displayed in Ham's actions. And remember that our passage here today comes not too far on the heels of the comparison of the wicked line of Cain and how that plays out and how Cain's line follows Cain's pattern and the godly line of Seth and how that godly line follows Seth's pattern. So Noah was the culmination of Seth's line, but Cain's line had been destroyed in the flood. It seems that another ongoing promise or curse of God in the fall of, in the fall of man continues to be fulfilled. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The commentary, if you have a Reformation study Bible on that passage in Genesis 3, it says... Humanity is now divided into two communities, the redeemed who love God and the reprobate who love self. The ones represented in the man cursed by Noah, Canaan, are shown to be a part of the community of the offspring of the serpent. And three times we are told Noah invoked a curse from God. Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. These thrice-cursed offspring of Canaan contend with the ones who are blessed by Noah. And speaking of those who are blessed by Noah, Noah does more than just curse Canaan. He also blesses Shem and Japheth. Similarly to Canaan as Ham's offspring, this blessing extends a whole lot further than just to Shem and Japheth, but to their ongoing family lines. And there's a whole lot of speculation out there based on some of the explanations that we'll see in chapter 10 on the table of nations as to who fits where in Shem and Japheth's descendants. Which families fathered which future nations and peoples? But for now, we're going to stick with what we know from our passage. Ham through Canaan fathered the wicked Canaanite nations, and Shem through our facts had fathered the people of Israel. And Japheth, by process of elimination, fathered many Gentile nations. While Canaan is thrice cursed, Shem and Japheth receive the blessing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. This whole theme of blessing and cursing will become familiar in the life of Israel. But there is more than just positive blessing for the righteous and negative curse for the wicked. It is God who is blessed. Those who bow their hearts to him and find in him blessing, while those who reject him find the cursed. It's blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Lord willing, we're going to be 
moving into a series after we finish in Genesis 1 to 11. We're going to move into a series looking at the book of the Judges, not one that you will likely have heard preached too terribly often, but as we move out of 1 to 11, that whole blessing of returning and calling out to God and the equal curse for those who would simply choose to do what is right in their own eyes becomes the, the pattern of judges. And if you aren't familiar, judges is the cyclical pattern where people keep returning to God and then calling out to him and then falling away from him and being judged by him and then calling out to God and it keeps going. These people choose to do what's right in their own eyes. But here, blessed be the Lord and God of Shem, the father of our Faxad, who then generations on would become the father of Abraham and David and Jesus Christ himself. And if we are correct that Japheth is a father to many Gentile nations, we ought to keep that in mind when we read passages such as Ephesians 2, which says, Therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made with the flesh of, by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Indeed, the offspring of Japheth found their home in the tents of Shem, adopted in and sheltered. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Even in this second fall, God is again establishing his promise and laying the foundational framework of the redemption, not only of his people, the national Israel, but in the adoption of the Gentiles who would believe into God's family and become grafted into God's family by the work of Christ. If you need any extra encouragement to see Noah as the final piece in the genealogy of Seth, the righteous line of Adam through Seth, contrast the last verse of our passage today with chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. 5, 4 and 5 says, The days after Adam, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Then today, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Our passage this morning is a reestablishment or reaffirming of God's covenant with Adam as well after mankind's reconfirmation of the effects of the fall and God's assessment of mankind in the covenant he made with Noah, that indeed man's heart is evil from his youth. Today, too, there exist children after the line of the serpent, after the line of Cain, after the line 
of their father, the devil. That's what Christ spoke of when he spoke in John 8. He said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is because you are not of God. For all of those who are of God, they hear the truth that God speaks. To all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There stands this blessing and this curse for those who show themselves to be of the line of Cain, of the line of Satan, or for those who are of the line of God, for those who hold fast their confidence in Christ to the end. To those, there's a promise that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But on the flip side of that coin, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Blessed unto salvation and eternal life, cursed unto condemnation and eternal judgment. Just as it was in the days of Noah, one day each one of us will have our lives capped with, and then he died, and then she died. Or if we're really optimistic, and then the Lord Jesus Christ returned. And then he or she found themselves immediately face to face, either with their salvation or their condemnation. One day that's going to cap each of our lives. And the way that we act doesn't earn us salvation. But the way that we act demonstrates what God has already been doing in our lives. If we have confessed Christ, then we will be made like Christ more and more and more each day until one day he glorifies us and perfects us in eternity. But for those of us who reject Christ, we shouldn't be surprised when we look in our world and we see such wickedness, even as Tim was praying for the great evils we're seeing in our country. None of that should surprise us for our world has chosen to follow their father, the one who was a murderer from the beginning, the one who lies out of his own character. Why would we be surprised if the world is following the one that did it best and did it first? So before any one of us come to that closing chapter of our lives where we hear those words and then he died and then she died we need to either confess Christ as our Lord and Savior or come to terms with the fact that there is a curse that attends not following him 
an eternal curse that there is no coming back from. So as we close in prayer, if you have already truly confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, thank you, thank him that thousands of years ago God made room for you in the tent of Shem. That tent of Shem comes down and becomes Christ. That through the offspring of Shem, you might even be saved as a Gentile believer. And if you have not yet confessed Christ as the Lord of your life, Perhaps this morning you can thank him that there is still time for you to humble yourself and pray and seek his face and turn from your unrighteousness to the glory of God and his son Jesus. So I would ask that as we close, if you would join with me in prayer. O oh Lord our God, you have worked in us a great thing. You have called for yourself a people. You have knit us into a community that is far greater than any one of us could ever imagine. That we can hope that since we are so surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that we could run with endurance the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes fixed upon Christ, who despising the shame that was set before him, endured death on a cross. And Lord, we pray that we would never lose sight of this. If we are already to be found in Christ, let us never forget and never for a moment take it for granted. And if we are not yet in Christ, if we have held out against the truth that is found in your word, we pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit and replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh and help us to see the truth of your word. See that Christ has done what none of us could ever do and no one else could ever do and that he has redeemed us from our sin and that we can be made right with you and that we can live with you forever. And Lord, we pray that we would act in accordance with our identification that we are to be found in you that we would act in all things in a way that would honor you and glorify you, whether we are watched or unwatched. For we know that you see all things, that none of us is hidden from you. And Lord, I pray too that your people here at Elk Point Baptist Church would be a people that seek and desire to combat the wickedness of our society, combat the evil that is propagating in our world, that we would do so for your glory, that we would do so that your name would be proclaimed in all the nations. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for our time together worshiping here today and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.